Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pause once again to be reminded of the fact that this morning and every day is about You. That You have created people, creatures, and the crown of Your creation being human beings to live for Your glory and to enjoy You now and forevermore. We thank You that You have sent Your Son Jesus into the world to save sinners so that the punishment of sin is removed and the power of sin's grip is removed from us who have trusted in Christ and that now we can live out our purpose of enjoying you now and forevermore, of giving you glory from the heart with our actions, with our words, with our priorities in everything. Father, this is all about you. Thank you. Be glorified in the preaching and ministry of your word as well as in the hearing and application of your word. Help us, Father, to walk away as people who are different because of what is what you will teach us this morning. Father, we pray for our country. We continue to pray that rather than the difficulties that are amongst us, um, leading people to be more hateful toward one another, to hurt one another, I pray that rather than that happening, that people would come to the end of themselves and the things that they trust in, that they would realize that there, was, there is one King in whom they need to put their trust, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, use these circumstances to draw people to Yourself. Father, I pray for our brethren in this country and all around the world, those who are opposed, those who are being persecuted in more explicit ways than any of us have ever experienced or will ever experience. I pray for them that You would give them endurance that You would comfort them with a great sense of Your presence, that you, would, you who are the God of all comfort would encourage their hearts, that they would be reminded of the fact that You are with them and help us to uphold them in prayer and to remember that we are just a small microcosm of something much greater going on in this world, past, present, and into the future. Help us to be kingdom-minded citizens. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52 is our text for this morning. And I'm going to go ahead and read this passage. Mark 10, 46 through 52. Hear the word of God. Then they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, stand up, he's calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. You know, as human beings, we have a tendency to take many basic things in life for granted, don't we? I know I felt that way in 2020, but I don't know about you, but one of the things that God has really been impressing upon my heart in 2020, each and every day, it seems, 
is just to not take for granted those things that I often do. For example, where the next meal is going to come from. Or whether there's even going to be groceries available for us in this society, right? Or pure water that is clean so that you can take a hot shower every single day. How easy it is to take those things for granted. Or air conditioning in the summer months during COVID season. Or a heater for the winter months that are now upon us. It's so easy for us to take those things for granted that they're just even even an afterthought, aren't they? Or we take for granted even more menial things that are important, such as, and I know moms, you're going to appreciate this, disinfected wipes, right? These days. For your kiddos. Or hand sanitizer. I mean, people were making, were banking on those supplies a few months ago. And it seems that now they're becoming more scarce yet again. So easy to take those things for granted. Or especially us men, rolls of toilet paper, right? So easy to take those things for granted. People were fighting for those things not too long ago. But there are even more critical things that we tend to take for granted, such as our health, that our bodies will always work properly, that we're always going to be able to move around as we did at one point 100%, that our vital organs are going to be working Those things that keep us alive, like our liver or our heart, it's so easy for us to take those things for granted. Or that we're always going to have our senses, our hearing, our smelling, our taste, our touching, or our seeing, our sight. Imagine the plight on the ladder there, seeing the struggle of blindness. Can you imagine that? Imagine if I asked you right now to close your eyes or I blindfolded each of you, those who are able to get around, and I gave you five tasks to accomplish here in our town or city of Burbank. You could, you had to accomplish those tasks with those blindfolds on. That'd be pretty difficult, wouldn't it? We're not wired to be able to operate that way. We take for granted even our ability to see. For most of us, um, it's just an afterthought for us. But imagine that. Imagine not being able to see. Well, back in the first century, there was one such blind man who wrote in the first century describing what it was like for him to be blind in the first century. And I'm just going to read one little paragraph from what he wrote. He writes the following, this blind man As I sit beside the road, my nostrils are filled with the dust of countless ages past. I sit in the solitude of self-pity as I contemplate this prison. No, my prison is not one that locks me in, but it's a prison that locks me out of society and of my culture. I don't have bars that that contain me like a physical prison. But my dungeon is a world of darkness. I have often wondered what kind of face a beast that sings a song of the morning dove would look like. I have often longed to see the petals of a flower in bloom or to let my eyes caress the beauty of a a newborn child. 
He goes on and on to describe his first century experience of blindness further. But think about that. Such as a small glimpse of what it was for him to be blind living in his day and age. And imagine the ostracism that you feel. Even from those who try to be kind to you. They don't know how to identify with you. They don't know how to, they don't know how to reach out to you. They don't even know what to say to you. So that you often even, whether explicitly or implicitly, unintentionally, you feel ostracized by people around you. Well, today we have the opportunity to contemplate yet another powerful miracle by our Lord where Jesus interacts with such a person, a blind man. Now keep in mind that this is the last miracle, if you remember, recorded in Mark's Gospel before we turn to chapters 11 through 16, which are all focused on, our, on our Lord's, the last week of our Lord's life, on Passion Week. The events that lead ultimately to His death and His resurrection. And I love this particular miracle because it's very strategically placed by Mark in his Gospel. On the one hand, it contrasts the lack of understanding of perception of His disciples that we just saw last week. Do you remember? Two of them come asking Jesus for the prominent places. And it's just, they just don't get it. Jesus keeps saying to them, you want reward in the future kingdom? You need to be humble and serve other people. This is the contrast to that lack of spiritual perception of those individuals. And yet the miracle is also strategically placed because it looks forward, it points us forward to the Lord's triumphal entry as you see people respond to Jesus crying out, Hosanna, as to a king. So this is really a great placing of this miracle by Mark in his gospel. And in our passage today, we once again behold the glory of Christ as seen in the power of the Son of God. Why? Why? So that you and I may be people of faith. That you and I may be dependent upon our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You know, somebody mentioned recently to me, in good with good intentions. Wouldn't it be better to, to do more of a topical series where we just keep dealing with topics? One thing after another is happening in our culture. Why don't we just keep dealing with one topic after another, keep addressing those things? And, I would, and my answer was, what could be more pertinent to our culture today than a greater vision of the glory of Christ? What could be more pertinent than Christ? So that we would live dependent upon our Savior and anticipate His his soon return. And so as we see the glory of Christ and the power of the Son of God, it should evoke in our hearts a greater desire to worship Jesus, to live for Him. And for those of you who don't know Christ, that as we behold the glory of Jesus, you may come to put your trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, because He is your only hope. And I hope that you see that. I hope that you're recognizing that. Well, I want us to see, look at this passage in three segments. Three segments. First of all, I want us to see the timing of Christ's miraculous power. The timing of Christ's power in verse 46. Look there. Our passage says that they came to Jericho. They, meaning Jesus and His disciples, came to a place called Jericho, 
which was about 15 miles or so northeast of Jerusalem and five miles north of the Dead Sea. And Jericho was a city that Jesus and his disciples had to pass through on their way to Jerusalem. Remember, Mark wants to get us to the cross. He wants to get us to see the suffering servant on the cross who came to pay for sins and rise from the dead. He wants to get us there. They need to pass through Jericho as now they're heading to the cross in Jerusalem. Jericho is also the place where Jesus, according to Luke 19, will call the infamous tax collector Zacchaeus to repentance, to follow after him. And Zacchaeus will do that. He will become a follower of Jesus. That happens soon, sometime soon after this event here. In Luke 19. And if you remember, this is the time of the three great yearly feasts, including Passover. And so what you have here is literally thousands of pilgrims, many people making their way to Jerusalem at this time on this main highway. This is why if you look at verse 46, it tells us that this miracle takes place as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd. This is a busy, hectic time. This is a very large traffic of people who are around Jesus and his disciples. And it's at this time that verse 46 tells us that a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. Now, Matthew's parallel account tells us that there were actually two blind men there. Mark only highlights one blind Bartimaeus, this beggar, who becomes really the spokesman for the two blind men. And so there's this, here's this blind beggar here in the midst of this crazy, hectic environment. Now, we need to understand that blindness was a, a very common condition in those days. People were either born blind or they were led by some other condition to lose their vision. And this is very hard for us to understand because nowadays we're so blessed with so much medical technology here in America that allows us to avoid certain difficulties and conditions and sicknesses. We're so blessed. But in those days, medicine and medical treatment was not as advanced. It was scarce, not readily available for people. And so blindness was a very common problem. And so here's this man, given his obvious limitations, like other blind people, who is unable to care for himself to do just the basic things. Blind people were known for walking around aimlessly, crying out for help, anybody that would listen. They would sit in very strategic locations looking for basic sustenance, asking people for food or water or some kind of a snack in those days or alms, money just to provide for their basic needs. They were poor and destitute people whom nobody paid attention to. And so please note, first of all, that the timing, the context is this great Passover feast with plenty of witnesses to testify about what's about to happen to this blind man, or really to the two blind men. And so this poor man stations himself along the main road that leads to the great city, the city of Jerusalem, where Jesus is ultimately headed in order to die for sins. Secondly, notice the need for Christ's power. The need for Christ's power in verses 47 and 48 Look at verse 47. When he, 
this blind man heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He wasn't whispering. He wasn't using inside voice. He wasn't just talking. This man is yelling for Jesus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now picture this. There are literally thousands of pilgrims going by. There's a massive traffic of crowds and people passing through. The decibel level is already very high. There's great excitement, great energy. But in addition, all of a sudden, there's an added heightened noise level. Added excitement. Added energy is felt. And it's felt by this man. And according to Luke 18.36, as this man is hearing this, this growing commotion, he begins to inquire what the commotion is all about. And it says in Luke 18.36 that they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. Can you imagine? It would be like the President of the United States showing up and all the commotion surrounding that. And people talking about it. You see people flocking over there. Or maybe your your favorite athlete showing up amongst us. And you'd be over there wanting to get an autograph. There would be commotion surrounding that. Or maybe your favorite pastor or preacher in America, right? There would be great commotion surrounding that. And so all of a sudden, you can imagine this man, the sense of hope that he must have felt. Day after day, he had stationed himself to ask for help from people who mostly ignored him, who gave him the cold shoulder. How many times you can imagine he had gone home without the basic needs that he had provided for him? How many times had he not left hopeless and in despair that nobody would ever help him? But now this is different, isn't it? This is this is Jesus This blind beggar has heard of the Master. He's heard of Jesus' teaching and of His great power to heal any and all who come to Him without fail. He's hitting a thousand percent on His healing ministry. He's heard of Jesus' power to cast out demons, to heal paralysis, to heal lepers and people with hemorrhages. To heal people who, who or to, to, to seize storms and crazy waters and crazy winds to calm those things down. He's heard of Jesus' power over nature and power over the demonic realm and power over sicknesses. To some extent or another, this man is aware of that. He has heard of Jesus who is able to feed 20,000 plus people from just a few basic necessities. Wow, this is Christ. This is Jesus. To some extent or another, this man has heard about Jesus. And he's come to believe that Jesus can do anything. Anything. And most importantly, as we're going to see, this blind beggar has come to believe that Jesus is more than just a man. Because notice, as soon as this man is told about Jesus... Verse 47 tells us that he began to to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. 
Jesus, son of David, literally son of David, Jesus. Emphatically identifying him as son of David, who is Jesus. Now, right away, when you hear that title, son of David, if you read your Old Testament, then immediately your thoughts should recall 2 Samuel 7, where we find the Davidic covenant where King David is promised that someone from his lineage would always be on his throne in the light of his faithfulness. And of course, the Davidic covenant first and foremost speaks of physical kings that would come from the line of David, but ultimately... He's promised a a forever king who would be on his throne. And that king is the greater forever king from the line of David. And what's his name? Jesus. Jesus. And so son of David is a messianic messianic title. It's a title pointing to the long-awaited king. The long-awaited monarch who would come to deliver his people. And so it's, it's so significant that Mark places this account here at the end of Mark 10, because by the time that we turn to Mark 11, what are we going to see? The triumphal entry of who? Of the king. As they cry out, Hosanna in the highest. Crying out words that are attributed only to a king. So I love the placing of Mark with this particular miracle here in this particular spot. And it will be at the triumphal entry. As people are crying out, claiming that Jesus is king, that will literally infuriate the Jewish leaders and they will expedite his execution. What a strategic thing to do here. And so in contrast to the religious leaders, however, this blind man is attributing to Jesus the the highest honor, the highest honor. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But no one is paying attention to this. Notice in verse 48 how they they try to silence him. Verse 48, many, maybe the disciples, maybe people, pilgrims who were following close with Jesus, many were sternly telling him to be quiet. Hey, guy, hush! Be quiet! Jesus is busy. What's the matter with you? They were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. This man would not be denied. He would not be silenced. In the midst of massive crowds and great noise, his voice must have been so loud, so intense, that it thundered and and echoed over the crowds in that hectic environment. This is what desperate people do, don't they? This was the persistent, passionate plea of a helpless man. A man who, by the way, understood his sense of unworthiness. He kept repeating, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Continually is the sense that he kept crying this out. He understood his place. And that's what faith does, doesn't it? Faith understands our sense of unworthiness before God. And please don't miss key aspects of faith here. Faith is self-abandonment, isn't it? As we look at this man, there's a sense of self-abandonment. This man could care less about who was watching. He would not be stopped in his pursuit of people. Some of you who are listening this morning, 
You will not give your life to Jesus because you're more fearful of what people think. You're more fearful of family, pe- family members who will ostracize you if you give your life to Jesus. You're more fearful of losing friends if you give your life to Jesus. This man is not fearful of that. He could care less about who's listening to him. He has, he has all sense of self-abandonment. And crying out to Christ to, for help. He's not thinking, what will people think of me? What will people think of me? Who cares? Who cares? Christ is there and he recognizes need. And that's another one. Faith acknowledges one's need, doesn't it? He cried out in desperation and helplessness. He understood he could do nothing for himself. Only Jesus could help him. Only Christ. Faith acknowledges our need. You know, some of us, even this year, we're so fixated. We're so focused on, I want things to go back to normal. I want America to go back to normal. People need to be able to do the things that they used to do and all of that. And I'm not saying that we should be crying out, Lord, give us more suffering, Lord. We love this. Whoa! Right? But we're so fixated on that. What we should be more concerned about as Christians are people coming to the end of themselves. That's what we should be praying for. Lord, thank you for these circumstances. Help us to live well under those. Lord, please teach people as they have been robbed and stripped of what they always depended upon and rejected you in the process. Please help them to see their need. Please help them to see the fact that they only, only, only can find their sufficiency in you. God is enough and nothing else in this world and nothing else in this country. Faith acknowledges one's need. This man had come to the end of himself and his own resources. Faith is also directed at Jesus. Faith is self-abandonment. Faith acknowledges that one's need. Faith is directed at Jesus, we don't call people to have faith in their faith. We don't call people to have faith in themselves. In fact, there are only two kinds of people in this world. People who have trust in self or people who put their trust in Christ. No matter how you slice and dice it. You're either trusting God or you're trusting in yourself. But faith is directed at Jesus, it's faith in Christ. Christ is the object of our faith and our ongoing dependence. We call people to that. You know what faith is? It's a transfer of trust from self to now God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a transfer of trust from my resources, my good works, my way of gaining favor before a holy and just God, my way of of practicing religion for the purpose of gaining some acceptance before a holy and just God. It's It's trust from self to Christ. Saving faith says, Lord, there's nothing that I have to offer you that can, by which you can accept me. I come with empty hands of faith. I want to put my faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so faith is directed at who? At Christ. He's the object of faith. Fourth, faith is persistent and passionate. 
Faith is persistent and passionate in its pursuit of Jesus. Faith doesn't give up. It's proactive in our relentless pursuit of Jesus. It's the heart of Paul when he says, I press forward toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I forget the old things. I press forward to Jesus. That right there is proactive, spirit-empowered, grace-filled faith. It's persistent. It's passionate in its pursuit of Jesus. So please notice this man though blind, had such spiritual sight. This is important. It's not that our faith somehow activates God's power, as if God somehow needs something from us, namely our faith, but it's that faith is is the means by which we are ready to receive God's blessings, and at the top of those blessings are spiritual salvation. Faith is the means by which we come with empty hands and say, Lord, there's nothing that I have. I'm broken and fallen. I am bankrupt, spiritually bankrupt, have nothing to offer you. Please save me. I cry out to you and please have mercy on me. This is the heart of this blind man, isn't it? Third, third notice, the display of Christ's power. The display of Christ's power in verses 49 through 52 verse 49 says and jesus stopped and jesus stopped picture this again jesus is in is in haste jesus is resolute on getting to jerusalem to do what to die for sins and to rise again. He keeps telling the disciples over and over again, as recorded by Mark in his gospel, that that was the ongoing conversation. He's headed to Jerusalem. He is resolute on his purpose to die for our sins. And you can imagine how his mind and heart are full as he thinks about this. He was human just like us, though perfect and blameless. His heart is full in light of what awaits him. Maybe he's weary from the ongoing journey. Maybe he's emotionally drained. On top of that, there are the the mass crowds traveling with Jesus, asking him questions, discussing things, pushing and shoving, as we've seen in other miracles that he's done and in other contexts in Mark. People are constantly around Jesus. He's going through all of this. And then on top of that is the ongoing foolishness and immaturity and the lack of understanding of his own beloved disciples. Put yourself in, in Jesus' world, if you will. Though there's only one Christ. All of this is happening. And yet in the midst of this, in the midst of all that's taking place surrounded, centered on Jesus, once again we see a Savior who always makes time for a human being in need, doesn't he? As Mark 10.45 just told us last week, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was all about serving people all the way to the cross. And so here's this lowly, blind beggar, expendable in his day, Ignored by people, a nuisance to the common person. Most of us wouldn't even give this man the time of day. Wouldn't even care about his needs. 
But Jesus does. Jesus does. Some of us need to pause here and see the glory of Christ, even in the fact that He always paused in life to serve other people, right? He came to make disciples, to make followers of Himself. And disciples are people. So Jesus always made time for people. Some of us need to get this lesson in our lives right now. We are so busy doing so many things and we have very little time for actual people to invest ourselves into others and to reach out and to care for others. And you know what? The Lord every single day challenges us as believers whether we are going to be about people like Christ. Just two days ago, I got a little challenge from the Lord. You know, I'm in the midst of preparing to minister the Word of God to you guys this Sunday morning. I'm, I'm just having a great time in prayer. Uh, things are coming together for Sunday morning. And all of a sudden, I get a little email and then a statement from Ruth in the office. Essentially, there's, there are people who really, really are hurting right now. They, would, they wanted to know if they can stop by basically randomly without appointment just to see if you can pray with them. And you know what? At that moment... I had a lot to do. I'm preparing the Word, right? Even good things can be excuses for us to not be available for people. And so by God's grace, we were able to spend time together, praying together, and they were very encouraged. Every single day, beloved, God brings people to our lives. Divine appointments named people, individual lives, where He is challenging us about whether we're going to be like Him and we're going to set ourselves aside, not look out for our own personal interest, but also for the interests of others and serve others. Oh, our Lord was the ultimate example of setting aside anything for people. And so rather than following the people of His day, the Lord Jesus stops. He says, call Him here. Call Him here. He could have gone to Him, but instead Jesus calls Him to Himself. So they called the blind man, saying to Him, Take courage. Stand up. He is calling for you. Can you imagine this blind man? And the excitement and the exhilaration of this man, Jesus of Nazareth, He's calling me? I mean, there are hundreds and thousands of people passing through here. He wants to talk to me? Verse 50. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. Only Mark records these specific details because remember, Peter was most likely Mark's eyewitnesses writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So Peter was there and he's describing with some of these miracles and situations specific details. And so verse 50 is unique to the Gospel of Mark. He throws aside his cloak. He jumped up and came to Jesus. Literally, he sprang up. He shot up this man with great eagerness and, and, and energy. And he threw off his cloak. Normally, such a poor beggar would, would hold on to his garment close by so that no one would take it. But this guy's not even concerned about that. He rushes over to Jesus, throwing aside his garment. This is the most important appointment he has ever had with King Jesus. Verse 51, and answering him, and answering him. I love that. What was the answer of others as they see this man in need? Hush, 
Hush, move on. He's too busy for you. Who do you think you are, blind beggar? What was Jesus' answer? Verse 51, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? It's another way of saying, how can I serve you? How can I serve you? Beloved, there are so many people in this body that I'm so grateful for that this is your heart right here. You're very Christ-like, and it doesn't matter what people are going through. You're always available, basically with the heart attitude of, how can I serve you, brother? How can I serve you, sister? I'm so thankful even, speaking of thanksgiving, for a, a church of people growing to be more and more like Christ by setting aside themselves and learning to serve other people. I have seen some amazing examples during this whole COVID season, this year, 2020, of the way that so many of you have served one another, even in ways that I would have never been able to come up with. Amazing. Some of you are so much like this. Share the heart of Christ. What do you want me to do for you? How can I serve you? You stop and you serve others like Christ. And so this is our Lord. Constantly in the Gospels, Jesus asks questions like these from people who come to Him. How can I serve you essentially? What do you want me to do for you? And here, He wants this man to specifically articulate his need to acknowledge his helplessness as he comes to Him. And the blind man said to him, verse 51, Rabboni, that's an intensified form of, of the word rabbi, which means my teacher, my master, Rabboni, my teacher, my master. I want to regain my sight. So direct, so honest, so much the opposite of the disciples in the previous passage. Remember what they did? James and John, they want to request something of Jesus, but they come very sneaky and somewhat dishonestly to Jesus. And Jesus has to draw them out so that they could be honest and transparent. What does this man do? This blind beggar addresses Jesus as the son of David, the long-awaited king. He acknowledges his neediness, have mercy on me, and he's fully honest and transparent about what he's asking from Jesus. No pretense. No bells and whistles. Lord, I want to regain my sight. What a stark contrast to the disciples. Knowing the genuineness of this man's heart. In verse 52, Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Literally, your faith has saved you. Immediately, he regained his sight and began to follow him on the road. The parallel account again of Matthew 20 and verse 34 records for us that Jesus was moved with compassion and that Jesus touched their eyes, both of the blind men. He touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. And Luke 18.43 sort of rounds it out for us by telling us that after the blind man regained his sight, he began following Jesus, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, when they saw the miracle, they gave praise to God. So similar to the raising of Lazarus in John 11, where Jesus says, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, this miracle of this blind man 
seen once again is for the glory of God. People begin to praise God and glorify God as they see what Jesus has done here. We also learn further, just one further quality of faith here. That faith follows. That genuine saving faith doesn't just embrace Jesus as Savior, but embraces Jesus as Lord because He's one person. Faith obeys the Savior. These men did just that, these two blind beggars. They follow Jesus. They become disciples, followers of Jesus. Can I just remind us that if you truly have faith in Christ, then you are a follower of Jesus. You long to do what He says. You long to obey Jesus no matter what the price or what the cost. You obey His Word. True, genuine followers of Christ don't view His commandments as burdensome, but as a blessing. That He is a good and kind and gentle Savior and Lord who is never going to command us anything that is not for His glory and for our good. So genuine faith follows. Follows. Now as we look at this account... What are some further takeaways for us? Let me give you four. What are some takeaways for us from this particular account? First, the first takeaway is that here we see very simply the glory of Christ once again. We see the glory of Christ once again. Please don't ever read your Bibles. Don't ever read the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And first and foremost... Look at the Gospels to find some virtue that you need to imitate. And there are many to imitate that are Christ-like virtues. The first reason why you should read the Gospels is to get to know Jesus. To behold Christ. These miracles, beloved, are for the purpose of showing us Christ. Because as we see this power being displayed here, we are left to realize, oh, the glorious power of Jesus. No one can do what Jesus can do. Amen? No one. So let us worship Him and let us bow and love and serve the Savior. Who can make a blind man see? Only Christ. Can you? Can me? Who can raise a a paralytic Can you, can I? Neither the false teacher on television. Only Christ can do this. Behold the glory of Christ as seen in His unmeasured, unmatched, and unrivaled power, beloved. Christ is displayed in the the partial glory here for us to see. And one day we're going to see Him in the fullness of His glory. Here's a full, complete, immediate, and comprehensive miracle shown to us yet again so that we might bow and worship to King Jesus. This was not a process. It's not full of shenanigans like false teachers. No hocus-pocus trash. No show. No bells and whistles. No therapy. No bandages needed for this blind man. Just in an instant, powerful miracle displayed. He can see once again. Behold Christ. Behold Christ. 
His teaching and His powerful miracles all point to His identity as the unique Son of God. And I've told you before how the Gospels contain 37 miracles by the Lord Jesus Christ. 37 miracles, 19 of them, more than half of the miracles, appear in the Gospel of Mark, and all of them are designed to get us to see and to savor the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might believe in Him, that we might know Him, that we might love Him, that we might live for Him, that we might serve Him, and, beloved, in this desperate, wicked generation, that we might tell people about Him. Behold Christ, that we might appreciate and adore Him and tell people about the hope found only in Jesus. Don't ever come to the Gospels for any greater reason than to behold Jesus. What could be more pertinent? What could be more applicational for us? And that our view of Jesus would would rise high above the, the crazy culture in which we live and the sin around us. So that we would be more resolute in fulfilling our mission. A second takeaway is that this was an act of real compassion. We behold a, an act of real compassion by the Lord Jesus. It wasn't like Jesus would sit around or walk during His earthly ministry say, you know what, I'm going I'm to do another one of these miracles so that everybody can see me, but I don't really care about the person that I am touching right now. No, this was a real act of compassion. Genuine, authentic compassion. In fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, Jesus the Messiah came into the world to help people motivated by genuine, heartfelt love and compassion for mankind. Jesus could have come to earth showing His identity in so many different ways. How did He do it? He displayed mercy by touching people. Healing people, listening to people, identifying with people's plight, stepping into their world to feel their brokenness, though he was blameless and perfect himself. And brothers and sisters, as the image of God is being continually restored in us who are Christians, love and compassion should be growing as well in our lives. That is what being like Christ means in this day and age as well. If indeed you are growing in the truth, you will also be growing in love for lost and broken people. They go hand in hand in the mature believer. The more mature that you are, the more that you should see a commitment to the truth, a zeal for the truth, a passion for the truth, coupled with a love for for God and a love for people. We need to pray for that. Love and truth working together. Why should we be compassionate and merciful toward people as well? Because such were some of us. 1 Corinthians 6. Such were some of us, but we were washed, but we were justified, but we were sanctified in the name of the Lord and in the Spirit of our God. We should be merciful. Like this blind beggar, we were extended mercy by God and should have the same kind of heart toward other people. You say, Pastor, why do you say this? I say this to you intentionally. Because what I observe in some of us is that some of us find ourselves more perpetually angry at the world around us than anything else. 
more bitter, more resentful, more negative, more pessimistic, more frustrated, more vindictive than anything else. We find ourselves responding more sinfully than displaying Christ-like mercy and compassion. You want to know who the ultimate example is? Christ. Just look at the way He lived. Did He call out sin? Yes. Did He confront people on their sin? Absolutely. But did He love people? Oh, did He love people? Why did He come to earth? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But some of us find ourselves more concerned in the present about a a won or lost election, depending on where you fall, than on lost souls who need to find hope in Jesus alone. Please don't forget why you're here, Christian. Please don't forget why you're here. You're not primarily here to be some political activist, even if a passive one, for one party or the other. You're not primarily here to be a successful person as the end goal, to get rich, to get more money, to accumulate possessions, houses and dogs and pets and fish, everything else. You are not here primarily for those things. You are here to make disciples in fulfillment of Christ's great commission. That's why you're here, Christian. Let us be compassionate like Jesus, who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And who are the many? People. Souls. He came to reach souls for Himself. That's why He came. And so if we're going to be Christ-like, we need to be people of compassion. And love and mercy like our Savior that would drive us to want to tell people about the only hope found in Jesus for the salvation of their souls. For deliverance from a place called hell where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth where forever and ever and ever they will be reminded of their rebellion against the holy and just God and their rejection of Jesus who died to pay for their sins on the cross. We need to be zealous about that message, brothers and sisters. Let us be compassionate and merciful like Jesus. Third, we take away from this text that we all need salvation. That we all need salvation. We're reminded here that all people are sinful and broken and desperately in need of Christ. Doesn't it seem like with every person our Lord encounters in the gospel, I feel this way, we can identify with our neediness and our helplessness, not only physically, but especially spiritually, right? That's what we see. Because the problem with humanity is not primarily one of a physical nature, but of a spiritual one. With every person born into this world a sinner, Spiritually blind in their trespasses and sins. And so what's our greatest need? What is it? More money? A better job? What do we need? We need salvation from our sins and deliverance from the judgment of God found in Jesus Christ, right? 
We need to see our sin against the holy and just God. We need to see that we cannot save ourselves by our good works, that we stand guilty and condemned before the Lord, and we need to look to Christ and trust Christ. Which leads us to our fourth takeaway. We need to trust Christ. Fourth takeaway. We need to put our faith in Jesus like this blind beggar. And can I remind us of the nature of faith? Once again, that faith is not simply knowing or agreeing with a set of facts about Jesus because even Satan and his demons believe and shudder, says James 2.19. It's not just agreeing to a set of facts about Jesus intellectually with no heart impact or brokenness over your sin before a holy and just God. Faith is also not some ambiguous or undefined gaseous force or concept of some kind, as people talk about it in our culture. Faith is a miraculous gift of God in the human heart where you come to believe in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ as He is revealed in Scripture, the Word of God, the Bible. To have faith is to trust in Christ alone, believing, being fully convinced that Christ died in your place to pay for your personal sins. You don't look at this man who died 2,000 years ago as just another man who died like every other person did. No, to have faith in Jesus means that you look upon him who died 2,000 years ago as not just a man, but he is the God-man who bore your sins, your personal sins, and took your personal punishment that was aimed in your direction against your sin. That's what it means to believe in Jesus, to personalize that death As applying to you, you put Jesus on that cross. Sinner. Kempis Hernandez's sin by nature and in action and in attitude put Jesus on the cross. He paid for my sins. He paid for your sins. To have faith is to love Him then. To live for Him. To obey Him and to tell others about Him. What's the heart of genuine faith as a follower of Jesus? Listen to 1 Peter 1.8. And though you do not see Him, namely Christ, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. I love that. Genuine faith shows itself in your life in a total and complete new orientation and outlook on why you're here. You're here to glorify God from the heart. In everything that you do, your aim is to glorify God. That is faith in practice. To put it in the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I feel this way, don't you? If this is not who Jesus is, why am I doing this? Let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But no, because of the risen, exalted Jesus, the returning Christ, this is all worth it. Amen? It's worth it, beloved, to live for Christ. So have you come to repent 
of your sins against a holy and just God this morning? Have you come to realize that there's nothing that you can do to save yourself? Who are you living for? There's only two types of people on earth. People who live to worship self or people who live to worship God through faith in Jesus Christ. Which one are you? Trust Christ. Put your faith in Jesus Christ, the only hope that you have this morning. What a powerful account. This blind beggar receives sight, not only physical, but spiritual. And this man would go on to live life now for Jesus out of love and sheer gratitude for what Christ had done in his life. And brothers and sisters, my prayer is that as we anticipate Thanksgiving this week, we should be thankful every single day of our lives. Every day you should get up and the first thing that you ought to do is say, Lord, thank you for allowing me to be conscious of myself. Thank you for breath and life and all things. Thank you for the basic things of life. But I pray also that this Thanksgiving, that your attitude would be one in which you might remember how good God has been to you in granting you spiritual sight to see so that now you belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ. May we be grateful for that, beloved. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your precious word. Thank you for the fact that you've cared for all of our needs this year. Thank you for the fact that you have given us especially spiritual sight, that you've shown us our sin and our misery apart from Jesus. Lord, I just pray that you would continue to help us to see and to savor Christ, to live for him, to love him, to serve him. Father, I pray that in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, that we might be people who would be set apart, set apart from sin and living for the glory of this Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.